support for programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and Utah State University Extension, serving the people of Utah to improve the quality of life for individuals, families, and communities for more than 100 years. Information at extension.usu.edu and Science Unwrapped in USU's College of Science. This Friday at 7 in the Eccles Science Learning Center, featured speaker Roger Coulomb, USU toxicologist, watching disease happen, the pathology of air pollution. Information at usu.edu slash unwrapped. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Last week, I attended the Extension Sustainability Summit in Park City and talked with some of the presenters there. We'll hear from them today on Axis Utah. Vivian Simon-Brown says we're in the midst of a sustainability revolution as powerful as the Industrial Revolution. Greg Garfin seeks common ground on climate change and says we'll need to change the way we use water. Gail Buchanan says that farmers will have to contribute to continue to produce more per acre to feed a growing world population and that we shouldn't fear GMOs. And Iris Mays describes efforts to improve Coeur d'Alene Indians' access to native foods. Hope you'll stay tuned. You can comment via upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We begin with Vivian Simon-Brown, who is a sustainable living specialist at Oregon State University. Her presentation was The Sustainability Revolution. We are in the middle of the most profound social transformation of our time, the sustainability revolution. And most of us don't have a clue about it, and we don't know what our roles are within it. If you think about the scientific revolution in the 16th and 17th centuries, or the industrial revolution of the 18th and 19th centuries, it's as big as that. As as big as that. I I think we don't tend to... think about it in those terms. No. We're living it. Mm-hmm. Um, back then, well, let's say in the scientific revolution, we have big names that we can all, we all know, Galileo, Descartes, uh, Newton, Voltaire, um, and the Industrial Revolution, of course, you know, we know about Fulton and Watt and Edison and Lister and Pasteur, but do we know the names of the people now who are actively involved in the current revolution, you know, people like Donna, um, Mother Teresa, the Dalai Lama, Fodor, Macy, Petrini, all of these people 50 years from now are going to be well known. And perhaps some of the people who were in that room in that conference will also be people who will be well known. But we're in the middle of it, so we don't see it. Maybe we could pause and define sustainability. It's a term that gets thrown out around a lot. (laughs) In my program, the Sustainable Living Project at Oregon State, uh, the definition I use is taking a thoughtful approach to living a fulfilling, productive, and environmentally responsible life. There is also, of course, the official sustainable development uh, definition that was done by the UN Council way back, I think, in the 70s called the Brundtland definition, and that's the part that tells about addressing the needs of the current population as well as addressing the needs for future generations. That's kind of the famous one. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of us think about Mm -hmm. is is, uh, preserving, you know, life for future generations. Uh, So you're saying this this is... huge in scope and in importance, more than we perhaps think it usually is. So this goes, I think you're saying, beyond just ecology. Ecology is the part that we 
tend to think Absolutely. about. Absolutely. And I think what we do is we think of it more narrowly and we're missing the point. But if you think of, and let me list you some, some things, think about these things. Think about conservation, globalization, socially responsible investing, corporate reform, eco-literacy, climate change, human rights, women's rights, labor rights, invasive species, conflict resolution. All of those things tie into sustainability because they're about helping people live better lives. And sustainability, when you get down to it, is improving the life of people on our planet, all the peoples on our planet, social equity, and, of course, economic equity. So those three things go hand in hand, but it's not just ecology, though that's a pretty darn important piece of it. Maybe give me uh, some specific examples that you I, I wouldn't normally have thought of labor rights or women's rights as part of sustainability? Well, think about it. Uh, think about women in sweatshops getting uh, paid a small amount of money. They have to support their families. If they don't have social equity, um, they then are living in substandard housing. Perhaps they're drinking unclean water. Therefore, their children get sick. Therefore, um, they, you know, it just keeps escalating. What happens if they have access to clean air, clean water, their kids can go to good schools, that they can get decent wages? That goes along with taking care of people on our planet. That's part of ecology if you include people as part of ecology. There does seem to be a, a disconnect in thinking about sustainability, and that's, this is what you're trying to, to address, I think. Mm-hmm. Some people go along their you know, merry lives and think about sustainability as a uh, sort of a tree-hugging thing. You know, it's, it's not, it's not, <laughs> that's not me. Those people are fine, but it's mm-hmm. not me. Mm-hmm. You're saying this includes them. I guess that would be your message to them. Absolutely. Um, I work in Extension. Extension works with agriculture. I work in forestry. We have 4-H, because I'm from Oregon, we have oceanography. We have people who are making their livings from uh, fisheries, from logging and timber, from growing food crops. If we're helping them do their jobs better, and if we're helping them do their jobs more effectively and more sustainably, my gosh, we're really helping everybody. You know, but we have to think about our systems. I just noticed that we went over and checked that out. Whole Foods, there were tomatoes from Wyoming. I was absolutely shocked. I didn't know tomatoes could grow in Wyoming. <laughs> but where did the food come from? How far does it have to go? What happens when gasoline or diesel is $10 a gallon? We have to think about those kind of things and come up with strategies. Just in case something happens, we'll have a few choices. I look at this as, mm, what's the best way to say it? Trying to keep all the pieces to the puzzle and trying to keep all our, hedging all our bets. What can we do to make sure that we are sustainable, but we are having fulfilling, productive lives in the future? So you're, you're saying this is, we're living through an industrial revolution type Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that large of an event, we do, we're just not recognizing that. What, what are some changes? You know, how will life be different? If you, if you look out, you know, a few years, and we after having gone through this sustainability 
revolution? It all depends. Um, I could talk the gloom and doom, but I'm truly a Pollyanna, so I'm not going to go that route. But imagine 50 years out, we're probably going to have 8 billion people on the planet. We just turned over to 7 billion. That's a lot of people. Everybody needs to have clean air, clean water, uh, schooling, appropriate housing. Um, we're having the majority of the people in the world have far less materials than we do here in the United States. So how do we balance those things out? I worked in India, and one of the things that they said is Americans and Indians are very different because Americans see a difficult time coming, and what they do is that they pull in everything and hold on to it, keep it all as their own, whereas Indians share the work. So we do a little bit of this, we do a little bit of that, and we do a little bit of that, and that allows all of us to continue working. Whereas we look at it, we work longer hours so that other people will be able to have our jobs. I think we are at very much at a crossroads time, and we need to make some decisions on what we can do to ensure livability. And that's why I'm at the conference. Maybe be interesting to take, uh, you know, bring it down to the micro level, say a, a family. Mm-hmm. And and in a Pollyannish world, you know, you did prefer to go there. Having gone through a sustainability revolution, what would a, that ideal family be doing? They'd be biking to work. They'd be living close to work, smaller communities, uh, living, you know, solar panels on the house. Uh, <laughs> you're doing paint, great. <laughs> paint, <laughs> paint, paint, a, paint a picture for me here. Uh, you're painting the picture really well. We're, of course, looking at American society. Um, is what you're describing, but a little lower on the food chain. I will not ever say don't eat meat because, first of all, my ag compatriots would kill me, but we may be eating different kinds of meat, more chicken, more fish, uh, less larger animals that take more energy to produce. Um, That urban garden movement is really super, and so I think that's going to continue into the future, so more people are going to be filling in the gaps by having some local foods. Hopefully, in my Pollyanna world, people will do more sharing. People will be perhaps filling their lives less with stuff, that's one of my big things, Um, and filling it more with things that bring them great pleasure, like music, playing with their kids, going for walks. I believe in the future, again, this is a vision of the future, um, that people will be living closer to where they work. They may be telecommuting in all sorts of ways. We can't imagine what the technology is going to be like. Uh, Kids may be going to school in different ways, uh, but most likely it'll be a little more insular. And hopefully we'll have more mass transit that really works sort of like what they do in European European uh, Union. If you imagine, I'll use one concrete example, people in France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Spain, Switzerland, those kind of places, Western Europe, use 20% less energy than we do and have higher quality of life than we do in the United States. What if we just try to make that happen? that we reduce consumption 20% 
and we're 20% happier. Uh, so those are some good examples. I was going to ask you if there are some you know, best practices kinds mm-hmm. of areas. You, you think some areas in Europe are doing a, a good Absolutely. job? Absolutely. Absolutely. They're uh, primarily because of the mass transit, primarily because um, their fuel supplies are expensive, and um, they also seem... Again, it's always difficult to generalize, but the the culture of fast food is not there. I love going to Europe because I love seeing how people seem to still continue to enjoy themselves. They also don't work 60 hours a week like we do, and they have five weeks paid vacation. We don't. Uh, So it does sound like to get where you think we ought to be, there has to be a culture shift. There has to be a culture shift, and that's one of the things that we're looking at within Extension, is how can we help people make that. Climate change comes into the picture, too, because we most likely will be adapting to new climatic conditions. Um, So this is, in one way, an opportunity for us to go, wait a minute, we do this this way every day. How could we change it to make it less consumptive, um, less energy intensive. We have and, to just ask questions of ourselves. Right. And how do we get there? Public policy? Education? What's the best way to, to, to make that shift? Well, if I was queen of the universe, <clears throat> I'd love to just be able to say everybody does this. But people have to come to it in their own way. Often I do programs not in sustainable living, but I do it by saying, do you want to handle the holidays differently? Do you uh, think that maybe it's a little too much consumerism going on during the holidays? How else can we do it? Or, you have grandkids now. Do you have enough time for your grandkids? Would you like to have more? What are ways? My workshops are about ways of finding time. So people are interested in time, the time crunch, making time work better for them. They're interested in consumption. We are very consumer-driven society, and also there's another part of about this spiritual disconnect. We are in a beautiful building right now as we're talking. It's gorgeous outside. If we can get more people out uh, so that they have that connection with nature, the outdoors, that spiritual connection with the world that they live in, that's a very important one. Those are the three top ones that have been identified in many, many different research uh, venues. You're listening to Access Utah, and uh, we are listening to some interviews I recorded last week at the Extension Sustainability Summit in Park City. We just heard there from Vivian Simon-Brown, whose topic was the sustainability revolution. She's a sustainable living specialist at Oregon State University. Following a break, we'll be talking with Greg Garfin from uh, University of Arizona. He's seeking common ground on climate change and says we'll need to change the way we use water. Later on, we'll hear from Gail Buchanan, um, and uh, he'll tell us we should not fear GMOs and that we're going to have to have farmers ramp up their per-acre production to feed a growing world population. Also, we'll hear from Iris Mays describing efforts to improve Coeur d'Alene Indians' access to native foods. More from the Sustainability Summit following this. Make your reservations now for dinner with Zorba Pastor of Zorba Pastor on Your Health. Enjoy a vegetarian or meat selection and a festival of fall flavors prepared by the chefs at Herm's Inn in Logan, Thursday, October 17th. 
This private dinner will benefit local programming on Utah Public Radio. Reservation details about UPR's Dinner with Public Radio's favorite doc, Zorba Pastor, online at upr.org. Support for programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and Utah State University Extension, serving the people of Utah to improve the quality of life for individuals, families, and communities for more than 100 years. Information at extension.usu.edu and area-info.net, providing a social media outlet for personalized press releases, business news, business events, and opinions. Information at area-info.net. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. I attended the Extension Sustainability Summit in Park City last week. We're talking to some of the presenters from that summit, which included a range of Extension specialists talking on uh, water, air, land, food, and other topics. Next up is Greg Garfin, who wears many hats. He's a climatologist, an assistant professor, and assistant extension specialist in the School of Natural Resources and the Environment, also uh, deputy director for science translation and outreach at the Institute of the Environment um, at the University of Arizona. And he uh, headed a panel on air quality. By the way, we'll have that part, portion of my conversation up on our website later today. We concentrated on climate change and on water. And, of course, this is a politically loaded topic. Sure. And, and in some ways, you're kind of in that middle ground. You're trying to translate science for resource managers, mm-hmm. for, for the public. How do you go about doing that? where there's pushback mm-hmm. in certain, you know, from, from certain political stripe, mm-hmm. um, which I think has been fairly successful in, uh, in, in, in you know, if you, if you look at opinion polls mm-hmm. and you ask people, you know, it's about human-caused climate change, Actually, there, there has been some movement. Movement in what in, direction? In, in because your, because the, the research that I'm most familiar with actually shows that the majority of people believe that, yes, there is global warming going on. Fewer believe that it's human-caused. Many are willing to do something about it. Primarily, one, one of the, the real focus areas is energy. I mean, people can... can so so you, the question you originally asked was, how, how do I work and, uh, when there's pushback? Um, so, um, by and large, I don't argue or try to convince people. I present the science, and the science speaks volumes on this. There are going to be some people that either for ideological reasons or because they're not convinced by the scientific findings... I'm not going to be able to change their mind on that. There are others, you know, who want to learn more about the evidence, and I'm happy to work with them, and I do work with them. But there are also uh, maybe two sides of the climate change policy story. One is on trying to address the root causes of um, the human-caused element of climate changes, so the increase in the heat-trapping greenhouse gases. 
And then there's the other side is adapting to inevitable change. And the friction generally tends to be on the measures to reduce the root causes because, in part, it would require, in some cases, some major changes to what we'll call business as usual. And because in that business as usual, there are various kinds of interests that have trillions of dollars invested in business as usual, business practices as usual, infrastructure, and so on. And I think also people don't want to have to change. So there's that. When we look at the other side, the adaptation side, whether or not you are convinced by the evidence for human-caused global warming, there is the paleoclimate record of past drought, uh, high stream flow episodes, uh, low stream flow episodes, insect outbreaks, forest fires. Those are issues that we have seen to be exacerbated by increasing temperatures and also that are projected to get, the issues are projected to get worse. So even if you suspend your belief about any of the projections of the future, just looking at the past and looking at the severity of some of those kinds of episodes in the past, we're probably not prepared for really long, multi-decade, spatially extensive, geographically extensive droughts and um, floods of record. We, we have plenty of problems just looking at the pressures that are created by an increasing population in the western United States and in, in the southwest in particular, fluctuations in our economy, which are highly uncertain, degrading um, infrastructure. I don't know if you ever have a look at the American Society for Civil Engineers report card, which comes out every few years. This year, the United States rated, uh, I think, the highest rating since I've looked at these, which is a D plus. And, you know, they basically are talking about a trillion or more dollars by 2020. That's not too far in the future, just to maintain the infrastructure that we have. So we already have lots of issues to deal with. And then when you add on these climate stresses, that could be the kind of thing that, you know, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. And I think many people that I work with can agree on, let's be better prepared for drought, let's have more efficient water conveyance, let's be prepared for providing water for increasing populations. Most people don't like waste, the idea that we're, we're wasting our resources. They want to be able to you know, manage resources in, in a, an efficient way and in a way that allows their children and grandchildren to thrive in the future and so that we can have a thriving economy many generations in the future. So by and large, when I'm out talking to people, I'm looking for that common ground. And I'm going to work primarily with early adopters. And, you know, they may be people who have a particular political persuasion or just are convinced by the scientific evidence. Or 
have a particular philosophy about risk management that says that even if something is a low probability of happening, but if it has a high impact, and a lot of times, for example, a severe flood is one of those things, low probability, very high impact, we want to be prepared for that, and we want to know how the risk may change in the future so that we, at the bare minimum, can plan, and at the maximum, we can invest. So there's a lot of common ground out there in terms of looking at the world that way. And being here at the Extension Sustainability Summit, sustainability is, is a way of taking into account not just the very contentious climate change issues, but those other things that I mentioned, the infrastructure, the water, the air quality, and so on. I'd like to have you talk a little bit about water. Sure. Water vital to the West. Yeah. And as you're looking at the ways in which uh, climate is changing in the West, mm-hmm. what are the concerns with regard to water? That's a great question, and it's, as you mentioned, vital. As temperatures increase, they have an impact on, um, on snow. And our mountains, you know, the, the top, the snow-covered tops of the mountains, those are the, uh, the water towers of the western U.S., So some of the things that we've observed just in the last 90 years, and uh, in some cases we have have shorter records, but we have lots of snow course and and automated snow uh, measurement records. We've observed uh, earlier snow melt, a greater fraction of late winter and early spring precipitation falling as rain rather than snow. Uh, at elevations lower than 8,000 feet, and an earlier timing of um, snowmelt runoff in streams that are dominated by snowmelt runoff. Now, there's, a, there's some spatial variation, and some of the very highest mountain areas have been insulated from this effect. But when you combine that kind of impact with the effect of increasing temperature on evaporation, and that affects soil moisture, and then the fact that our region, in particular the southern part of the region, so I would say from maybe the middle of Utah south, is prone to multi-decade drought episodes. So you, you, have, you have now a sort of a, a cocktail for water resources problems. In Rivers like the Colorado River, which we know is over-allocated and which the Bureau of Reclamation, uh, which is not exactly a tree-hugging organization, they're very careful in their science and they're very careful stewards of water resources. They've pointed out that demand has exceeded supply in the Colorado River Basin and that if you include climate change in the projections for the future, the gap between supply and demand will increase so that we have um, not enough supply to meet all of our different needs, which include, of course, agriculture, urban water uses, and uh, water for the environment and recreation. So by and large, we need to be preparing for water resource shortages, potential shortages, and the good thing is that water managers in our region have really had their eye on the ball 
with regard to this issue. And I think in particular, probably uh, the year 2002, which was an exceedingly uh, dry and hot year throughout the entire West, was a wake-up call. And then seeing the, the reservoirs in the Colorado River Basin really plummet down, and they've been hovering at you know roughly half of their capacity. Uh, if you're in New Mexico, you've seen the reservoirs in the Rio Grande really hit you know, super low, I think historic low levels in that basin. So people are really paying attention. And they've been very creative about various kinds of management strategies. So those range from improved uh, water conservation, which every single state in the Southwest is um, already employing. Most uh, urban areas are treating and reusing effluent uh, primarily for non-potable water uses uh, to water grass in parks or on golf courses and so on. But California just developed best practices and regulations for direct use of potable use of treated effluent. And I think we will see other states doing that. I know Arizona will be starting a process for developing those kinds of regulations during the next year. There's, um, well, there's, there's uh, developing um, new infrastructure, new dams. California and Colorado are contemplating those kinds of measures already. There's a water desalination plants. Uh, California's already doing that desalinating ocean uh, water. Texas is also desalinating brackish groundwater from great depths. Uh, they're doing that in El Paso. New Mexico is um, developing the capacity to do that at a large scale. Currently, there are any number of small-scale desalination efforts uh, throughout the Southwest. Of course, uh, currently that's pretty costly and um, it's also very energy intensive, but people are working really hard to bring down the cost and use uh, renewable energy to power part or all of the desalination effort. And um, there are probably several other strategies. Some of them are market strategies doing short-term uh, water trade-offs uh, between agriculture and urban areas and so on. We've already seen a precedent for that in the Imperial Valley in California. When California had to wean themselves off of the excess Colorado River water that they were using, one of the uh, solutions there was for San Diego to purchase water from Imperial Valley farmers. And as far as I know, that's worked out well for the farmers. They're getting a good price for that. It may not be as satisfying to grow water as to grow crops, but if your bottom line is dollars, then they've probably made out pretty well, and it's worked out for San Diego mm -hmm. as well. So I would say, you know, that's a really long-winded answer for you, but I would say we've got a lot of tools in the toolkit. The water managers are paying attention, and really the issue is how much is it going to cost us, and will we get these various strategies implemented in a timely fashion? You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. You're hearing interviews I recorded last week at the Extension Sustainability Summit in Park City. 
We've talked with Vivian Simon-Brown of Oregon State University right there, Greg Garfin from University of Arizona. He wears several hats. He's climatologist, assistant professor, assistant extension specialist in the School of Natural Resources and the Environment, and also deputy director for uh, science translation and outreach for the Institute of the Environment at the University of Arizona. Coming up later in the program, we'll be talking with uh, Iris Mays from University of Idaho, describing efforts to improve Coeur d'Alene Indians' access to native foods. Following a break, Gail Buchanan on agricultural productivity and GMOs. Stay tuned. On From the Top, we don't just put young people on the show to hear their incredible musical performances. We celebrate the whole kid. We're all members of the Vermont Astronomical Society, and uh, we've also gotten really into building telescopes. I run cross-country, and I run track. Well, I'll eat anything as long as it's not looking at me, as, and as long as it's not moving around. I believe the correct term is math stud. <laughs> Join me, Christopher O'Reilly, to meet America's most outstanding young musicians on From the Top each week from NPR. Friday afternoons at 2, repeated Sunday nights at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Support for programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and Utah State University Extension, serving the people of Utah to improve the quality of life for individuals, families, and communities for more than 100 years. Information at extension.usu.edu. And the Cache Valley Center for the Arts presents World Blues, featuring the Taj Mahal, Vusi Mala Salela, and Fredericks Brown, Tuesday, October 15th, and Wednesday, October 16th, at 7.30 p.m. in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Information at cachearts.org or 435-752-0026. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We're hearing interviews I recorded last week at the Extension Sustainability Summit in Park City. Full range of topics covered, water, land, uh, climate change, uh, food. Later in the program, we'll talk with Iris Mays from University of Idaho. She'll be talking about a program she's involved with, which is in part trying to improve Coeur d'Alene Indians' access to native foods. Next is my conversation with Gail Buchanan. He's former USDA chief scientist and undersecretary for research, education, and economics, and he's dean and director emeritus of the College of Agriculture and Agricultural and Environmental Sciences at University of Georgia. He spoke at the summit on Solutions from the Land Initiative. If you go back before agriculture, there was some... It's estimated the planet's population was one to five million. That's million with an M. Well, then when agriculture got started some 10, 12,000 years ago, depending upon your source, uh, the, for the next 10, 12,000 years, as agriculture evolved and developed, there was a better supply of food, more consistent supply of food. The population of the planet grew to some 200 million by one A.D., well, then it only took about 1,800 years for the population of the planet to reach a billion. And of course, then only 123 years for it to reach two billion. And then, of course, the population started growing rapidly. The planet population passed seven billion this past October a year ago. And of course, what's of concern is that uh, most uh, conservative estimates place the population of the planet in excess of nine billion by mid-century. That means there's going to be two billion more miles to feed in less than 40 years from now. 
But that's not the whole picture. The, the big picture is many of these world's people, including some in developed countries, are wanting more food, more diversity of food, better quality of food, more vegetables, more fruits, more animal products. So the challenge that the land has got to provide is tremendous. And of course, I think most of us agree now that uh, agricultural production will be a part of the energy security in the future. And so that means we add not only food for humans, feed for our livestock and companion animals, fiber and flowers for the environment, but we now add energy to that expectation from the land. So the land resource is critical for our survival on this planet. So you've outlined a pretty steep problem, a lot of stresses on the land. Uh, what are some of the solutions? Well, there's a lot of challenges. And if you look at the challenges, number one is we're losing land. For example, in uh, just 25 years from 1982 to uh, in the next 25 years, uh, we lost over 9 million acres of cropland. We lost substantial amount of acres, some 12 million acres, to pastures and forest lands that went into development. We also lost some 16 million acres of forest. So that's a tremendous loss of land resource that's out of production. But, of course, that's not the only picture. We need still need land for people to live on. We need roads, highways. We need shopping malls. We need uh, reservations. We need parks. We need rights of way for power lines. So we have a lot of uses for the land in addition to producing the food, feed, fiber, and energy we need to sustain us. That's one of the challenges. Another of the real challenges is there's not a good reward system for ecosystem services. Now that's protecting and providing environmental considerations. We all agree that we need to protect the environment and, and try to enhance diversity and that sort of thing. But those that participate and do that, there's not a way to compensate them for doing that. And it's common knowledge that if you're going to expect someone to do something that costs them, you have to find some way to give them some type of remuneration. So that's another real challenge we're facing. Another one is of deep concern to me is declining support for research. In fact, this is why I'm spending much of my retirement working on a book on the importance of agricultural research. Because this is the only way we're going to generate new information, knowledge, and technology that will enable us to do the things we want to do in a more efficient way is through research. And yet, we in this country are declining to support research as well as many other countries. Even countries that are desperately needing more agricultural productivity are declining to support research. So declining support research is a deep, deep uh, concern that I have and one of the real challenges. Also, the challenge of climate. Uh, and of course, we know all the arguments. I was just reading an article in the Wall Street Journal on the plane coming up about how uh, the problem of climate change is overblown. But, but still, I think most of us agree that climate is changing. Now, you might want to quibble and argue a little bit about what's causing it and what are the values of each cause of the climate change. But it's no question that climate is changing and it will have an impact on productivity of our agricultural interest as well as our forest interest, as well as other effects. 
And then there's the normal risk you take, uh, market volatility, uh, changing expectations and market demands. Uh, uh, the market is demanding more organically grown food. We see a, an effort in some areas for locally produced food. All of these things will have an impact on how the land is used. So these are just some of the challenges that we face in, in achieving the goal that we have of ensuring that the land is there for us for the future. What kind of uh, agricultural production uh, do you think it's, it's going to take? It sounds like with so many more mouths to feed and uh, so many more stresses, we need to get more production per acre, right? But that kind of goes in the face of the current trends. A lot of people want higher quality, want organic. They want, uh, you know, they want some of these that perhaps would produce less per acre. Well, you've put your finger on the real real challenge. And, and obviously we've got to have more. We've got to have more, but... But I show one figure in my presentation that was provided by three economists in the Economic Research Service in Washington, USDA, that shows three curves. It has a curve that's almost flat, which over the past half century shows inputs in support of agriculture, showing almost no increase in inputs. Then you have two other curves that are very parallel and very close to each other that show a nice progression over the past half century. One curve is output, and the other curve is total factor productivity. That's the efficiency of production. Now the bottom line is output has increased about 1.58% during that period. Total factor productivity is about 1.52%. Input is about six hundredths of one percent. Now what that really means is essentially all of the increase in output over the last half century has been because we have increased the efficiency of production. That has come about through research. So if there's any chart that tells the story of the importance of agriculture research, this very simple but elegant chart by these three economists illustrates so clearly why agricultural research is important. Maybe you could point to some agricultural research that has had an effect from the past or current or, you know, but give us an example of what uh, agricultural research has produced. Well, and, and I mentioned I'm writing, I'm writing a book on agricultural research, and one of the things I've done is gone back in the National Agricultural Statistics Service to see what's happened to yields of major commodities over the past, ever since they started keeping records. And I've used corn, soybeans, uh, wheat, uh, rye, barley, uh, peanuts. And it's phenomenal what's happened to those yield increases over the years. Uh, some of the uh, yields, uh, I think we started keeping records on wheat maybe in 1866 or somewhere back then. The yields have increased phenomenally. Now that's just yield increases. Corn is the same thing. Almost every commodity, the yield increase has been tremendous during that period. And so that's just one indication of what research has done. But then I like to come back and say there's a lot of things other than just productivity. For example, the elimination of drudgery. I was raised on a farm in which my father believed in the children working from daylight till dark, pulling weeds out of peanuts and things like that. And the development of herbicides eliminated tremendous amounts of drudgery. Picking cotton, which is a miserable job. Uh, cotton pickers eliminated the drudgery out of picking cotton. Harvesting peanuts, harvesting corn. 
corn harvest used to last for months. In fact, uh, you start picking corn as soon as it was dry in August and pick till Christmas. In fact, in the Midwest, you'd pick when there was snow on the ground, trying to get the corn out. Hope to get it out before you had to start planting again. And now with uh, big combines, I was on my farm this past week and they had a, a big six row combine that was picking the corn and they could pick a 40 acre field in a day. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It elimination of drudgery. And there's several other ways that research has made agriculture different. Increasing that total factor productivity or enhance the efficiency of production. And this is what we've got to work on. This is why research is so important for the future. You've made a strong case for uh, the need to increase production. But I, I wonder if you, you talk to the, the organic camp, which is growing, and there is kind of social pressures, people who uh, don't like herbicides. And so your message is uh, probably not going to be very popular with with those folks, I wonder what you what do we, what you say to them. My my feeling is, uh, if you don't like herbicides, don't use them. No one holds a gun to your head and says use herbicides. And if the organic folks wants to grow their food in that way, that's their prerogative. This is a free country. But I would say that if we're going to meet the expectations to feed a planet, we have no choice but to use technology. Uh, and, and I would say that it uh, goes for, for biotechnology. I know there's some, some anti-biotechnology efforts. It's uh, still very common. But, uh, you know, it's kind of remarkable. One of the things that uh, strikes me, one of the first major uses of biotechnology was in uh, uh, developing insulin from genetically modified organisms. And yet, genetically modified organism that produced insulin was used and accepted almost immediately, universally, by diabetics the world over. In fact, uh, my wife uses insulin every day of her life, thanks to genetically modified organisms. And why such a great clamor over genetically modified corn and almost no cry over genetically modified medicine? It is interesting. Uh, I, I find it remarkable. But I don't think, in fact, I can't think of any technology introduced into agriculture that at one time was not controversial. I was in the South as a young boy when, when hybrid seed corn was first introduced in that part of the world. And there were many farmers that would not plant hybrid seed because they reasoned that if you couldn't save the seed, there must be something wrong with it. And so they suffered through open pollinated varieties of corn while some of their neighbors were growing hybrid corn for two or three years so they saw what those hybrid seed were doing till they came around. There was even concern that steel plows would not be successful because they would poison, quote, the soil. Obviously it didn't pan out. The whole era of ag chemicals is, is still controversial in some areas. Biotechnology is controversial. So the, the, the issue of, of controversy in agricultural technology is certainly not new. I rather suspect that the first person to hook the water buffalo up to a stick for a plow, some of his neighbors probably grumbled that uh, this was not a very wise use of water buffaloes, but I don't know that. So in conclusion, where is the, the, where is the project what's, and what's next? Well, what we're trying to do now is meet with as many people as we can to try to build support and interest. But the bottom line is uh, what we're now, we now have a publication that kind of broke our thoughts together 
And so we want to try to expand the group that has an interest and build as much enthusiasm as we can for solutions of the land because the uh, pathways that we identified is not something that can be done by a committee. It's not something that can be done by a small group. Well, let me just run through the pathways that we've identified. Number one is that any of the things that we do that's going to be successful has got to be done on a landscape scale type solution. You've got to look at a big picture. You can't look at one field or one operation. You've got to look on the broad big picture. So landscape scale type solutions is important. We've got to harmonize different policies. We have so many different kinds of policies that it's hard to understand them all and we need to harmonize them. We still have arguments over all kinds of rules and regulations between different uh, projects and activities. So we need to harmonize all policies so we're all together. And that requires bringing together a lot of diverse groups, not only within the ag community and forestry community, but the conservation community and all the environmental community as well. And this is why the environmentalist has got to be very much a part of this whole effort. That was Gail Buchanan, who is a former USDA chief scientist and undersecretary for research, education, and economics, and dean and director emeritus of the College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences at the University of Georgia. His presentation at the recent Extension Sustainability Summit in Park City was Solutions from the Land Initiative. We'll conclude the program following one more break with Iris Mays from University of Idaho. Her presentation, One Sky, One Earth Food Coalition, The Power of Community Action. Support for programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and Utah State University Extension, serving the people of Utah to improve the quality of life for individuals, families, and communities for more than 100 years. Information at extension.usu.edu. And the Cache Valley Center for the Arts presents World Blues, featuring the Taj Mahal, Vusi Mala Salela, and Fredericks Brown, Tuesday, October 15th, and Wednesday, October 16th, at 7.30 p.m. in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Information at cachearts.org or 435-752-0026. I recently visited the Extension Sustainability Summit in Park City. That was last week. And we've had some interesting conversations from that summit. We conclude the program with Iris Mays, who is Extension Educator for the University of Idaho, serving the Coeur d'Alene Tribe in northern Idaho. Her presentation was One Sky, One Earth Food Coalition, the Power of Community Action. So you're studying quality food, access to food. What, what problems are you, are you finding? So the assumption was that access to healthy foods is limited on the reservation. Um, we do have a pretty good produce section in the store, but it's it's at the kind of at the back of the main grocery store, and in the front of the grocery store is um, you know on the end caps are beer and energy drink displays and other kinds of snack foods that aren't necessarily something you want to be eating all the time. And then there are health issues in the community related to obesity and diabetes that the Food Coalition wanted to help address. And then the tribe is facing this disruption to have access to traditional native food sources because of the history of the last hundred years. So those are kind of the issues that sort of started the Food Coalition. Um, And then from the Community Access Survey, people did say that access to fresh fruits and vegetables was a barrier for them, and most people travel over 30 minutes to get their groceries. There is a high interest in cooking, canning, preserving, and cultural foods, so that was a good thing to know, that people do want to improve the food system. And um, the factor that most impacted 
people was was price. So people are concerned about how much they can afford to spend on foods. What about improving the, the food system? So we have um, several facets of our our program to improve the food system. Um, one is our community garden. So we have community garden beds in five locations. We have about 22 beds, and um, I think this year we produced almost 400 pounds of produce from those garden beds, and that produce gets given to volunteers. We sell it, the Food Coalition sells it at the farmer's market, and then we also let the students who garden at the school, we have one of our gardens is at the school, we have nine beds there, and the kids get to take produce home with them. We also work in youth education and adult education, so we have gardening classes, and the gardening education is part of our 4-H program for kids um, in the after-school programs, mainly. I understand the tribe is trying to improve, uh, I think you mentioned this, access to to food. So the tribe's Natural Resources Department has um, several restoration projects that they're working on, and, and they are trying to improve the fisheries available in the lakes and streams, and that is one food access um, that they're working to create. They also have um, a forestry department, lake management department, um, environmental programs office, and land services. So they're all working to preserve and restore the lands that support local native foods. That's not their main goal, but that is hmm. aside. What are the local native foods? Are they, I guess you'd have game, you'd have some things that you would think about. Uh... Well, the um, yeah, so deer and other um, big game um, fisheries and then plants that could be used for food or various medicines. Basically, my understanding is that the um, indigenous people used used everything in the environment and they were efficient and um, and made use of, of whatever was available. Mm-hmm. So almost all the plants had a cultural purpose and a use. So in some ways this is uh, cultural. You're getting back to back to older ways. Yeah, so the Food Coalition is made up of Native and non-Native community members, and so we're all working together to try to help create a healthier um, lifestyle for everybody. Um, And so the Native foods would would be just part of that, and that's more, you know, the tribe's natural resources department. But um, we have summer camp activities, and we try to get the kids out huckleberry picking. So that's one of the foods. the Natural Resources Department hosts a water potato day, which is actually a whole week, and we have about 400 students that come through from the area from um, preschool age through college age, and they go to different educational stations, and one of those stations is getting to dig water potatoes out of the, the wetland um, and see what those look like and taste some of those, taste um, smoked meat and smoked fish and um, learn cordelian language, um, learn some of the trees and plants that are in the area. It sounds like when you're describing you were doing the survey, and probably a lot of us shop this way anymore. You, you, you go into the supermarket or the 7-Eleven, whatever, whatever it is, and you've got the beer and the and the you know the unhealthy snack foods right in your face <laughs> yeah. because those those probably sell very well, right? Yeah. So how do we? Uh, I guess this program is is trying to find a way to get us away from that. And so yeah, one of the advantages of the nutritional environmental measures survey was that. We got permission from the store owners and the restaurant owners and managers to do the survey, and and then we um, showed them what our results were and how they rated compared to other similar stores or, or restaurants, and and then we gave them some different things that little changes that they could make to make a difference, and then big changes. So the advantage of that survey tool was that it, it allowed us to start a dialogue with the managers and owners 
to help them understand what could make their store or their restaurant healthier for people. Just offering healthy choices. You don't have to take away anything that you're doing, but but you can help direct people to some healthy options. My conversation with the Iris Mays, who's extension educator for University of Idaho, serving the Coeur d'Alene tribe in northern Idaho. My thanks to my guests today, Greg Garfin, Gail Buchanan, Vivian Simon-Brown, and Iris Mays. My thanks also to uh, Scott Boyer and Betsy Newman and uh, Rosalind Brain from Utah State University for their help uh, facilitating my uh, trip to Park City and uh, these conversations that I recorded there last week from the Extension Sustainability Summit. Thanks for listening today. Support for programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and Utah State University Extension, serving the people of Utah to improve the quality of life for individuals, families, and communities for more than 100 years. Information at extension.usu.edu. And by Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits and lunch sandwiches. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD 1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD 1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD 1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD 1 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD 191.5 Logan.